On today's Q&A episode, we're diving into all of your Run Smarter questions. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me. We have a Q&A episode today where I have answered some questions that have been submitted. We've done it a little bit differently today. I have put onto Facebook um, the post of, if you have any questions, please submit it. But we have a new kind of um, voice recording link where you can just click on the link, um, press a button, and then it asks you to record your question and I think that adds a little bit of a better element to the podcast. I'll decide whether I um, continue using this or just go back to the old ways um, upon reflection. We'll see how this episode turns out and what your feedback is like, or maybe it's a combination of the two. Um, I think what I might do is have the option to either, you know, submit it via voice recording or just type in your question. And depending how many questions I receive, how many entries come in, I might prioritize the the voice memos. Um, I'll prioritize the patron questions to start with and also prioritize the the voice clips that come in. But nonetheless, always working on trying to improve the not only the information that's delivered, but also the quality that it gets delivered in. So we have four questions today and first one comes from Rachel. Hi Brody, Rachel here. Um, I've been diagnosed with anterior compartment syndrome about 10 plus years ago. The treatment options I was given were change my shoes into more supportive ones. I did this. It didn't help much. Um, I am still trialing between minimalist and more supportive. The other option was fasciotomy surgery, which I'm a little hesitant about. Lately, the past two months, it has flared up. It is so painful. Gets me at about 2Ks into a run and then my feet are flat, flap footing. About 6K in, I'm okay. But during that 6K, it is really painful. Do you have any knowledge and tips for me? Thank you. Thanks for submitting this question, Rachel. I should also say that um, when answering some of these questions, I've... um, gone through some of the Run Smarter book um, to, you know, just pull out some of the topics I've been writing about and thinking about um, for quite a long time now, just to answer some of these. I've also consulted um, Campbell Maffitt, you might have heard a couple, maybe about a month or so ago, um, doing a Q&A 
asking for his guidance and his like different take on things as well. Um, so kind of got like a full brains trust or just other ideas other than myself um, to answer some of these questions. So thanks, Rachel. I guess we can start with, first of all, what is compartment syndrome? I have done one episode in the past and I wrote it down, episode 130, and the title was Compartment Syndrome, Signs, Symptoms, Risk Factors and Treatment. So if you aren't familiar with compartment syndrome and want to know more about it, you can just head to episode 130. But essentially, um, one thing that you need to know is mainly within the lower leg is uh, mainly below the knee is where we see this commonly in runners. And within that part of the leg, there's different compartments. So there's like sheaths of fascia that contain muscle, contain sometimes bone, contain things like um, nerves and veins and arteries. And they're all like contained within a fascia sleeve and there's several different compartments in that, in the, the lower leg. And what happens when we exercise is there's more blood flow to that area. The muscles have to get bigger because of the swelling of all the, the muscles that um, the blood flow that just gets to those muscles and the compartment itself can start to build up in pressure because the fascia that surrounds that, the, the sleeve that kind of surrounds all of those tissues doesn't expand it doesn't have the capacity to expand and contract and so if there's too much pressure being built up in that compartment pain can arise sometimes just like this exponentially increasing uncomfortable sensation that turns into pain and sometimes can turn into numbness can sometimes turn into a loss of muscle function um as the nerves and the arteries and the veins just get compressed, um, essentially just within that sleeve, just getting built up more and more pressure. That's when, yeah, pins and needles, numbness, um, a foot drop, those sort of things can start to arise depending on which compartment that is actually contained in will depend on where the pins and needles go or if there is a foot drop or where the pain is, that sort of thing. But commonly the deep posterior compartment which is kind of like the deep part of your calf um, and also the anterior compartment which is where Rachel was reporting um, which is kind of like the shin that sort of area and so what how it usually behaves is usually at the start of the run it's okay because the pressure hasn't had enough time to build up but if you run and you continue to run and the pressure continues to build throughout somewhere throughout the run sometimes it might take five minutes sometimes it might take 20 minutes but it'll get to the point where that pressure build up is too much and then pain starts to arise and if you continue to run and the pressure continues building up that's when the pain and the symptoms start to ramp up more and more and more it just exponentially gets worse and worse and worse until in most cases or in severe cases people are just forced to stop running so i hope that made sense in terms of the mechanics or the pathology of compartment syndrome so then we can get into a bit of advice because uh rachel you're talking about the anterior compartment so the shin um there are a few things that you can change and a few things that you can do to see if it works i'm not sure if you've tried it already but um 
the shoes, like you've mentioned that someone has advised you to change your shoes and it hasn't really been that much of a help. I would tend to agree. I don't know why changing shoes would um, change the compartment demands. Um, but usually for compartment syndrome, what I've found has worked really well. And this doesn't matter which compartment in the lower leg we're talking about. Doing some walk running could be really effective because you can start, say, running at all... The dosages will depend on the severity of the pathology, but in most cases, if you start running for one minute and then walk for one minute and then do that for the first maybe five five rounds and then you go to two minutes of running, one minute of walking and to see how that feels, then you can go to three minutes of running, one minute of walking and see how that feels. It just means that the walk breaks gives your body time to decompress that area because usually with compartment syndrome, what I believe anyway, is that the buildup of blood rushing to that, um, that area is too much for it to circulate. So there's too much going in with very little going out to circulate around the rest of the body. And so what the walk breaks do, the running sort of builds things up, but the walking sort of allows enough time for things to get decompressed and circulate around the body. And just having those breaks, we can see how symptoms behave over those breaks. And then you might get into your run, um, a continuous run further down the track once you've had all those walk breaks and you might be fine because the body's kind of um, returned to that homeostasis and the, the buildup is not no longer that exponential build up. There's a more of a gradual build up, so there's enough time for uh, fluid and blood and things like that to be removed from that compartment. So no matter what section of that lower limb, that most often does the trick. When you're talking about anterior compartment, we want to try and look at how you're running because there might be we might find a way to change your running to change the demand of that compartment so that the blood and the muscles and the, the buildup just doesn't exceed or doesn't reach what it would if you're running in your normal mechanics. So this will all depend on how you're running. But for most people that I've seen and what the research has shown is if you contact the ground, when you very first make contact with the ground with your foot, if your toes are higher up in the air, so toes are pointed up towards the sky more than um, normal, I guess, um, in quotation marks, then it would increase the demand of the muscles in the compartment within the shin. And so if that exists within your running pattern, it might be worth changing and might be worth correcting to, I guess, reduce the demand of the anterior compartment when you run. Um, so heel contacts, are still okay, provided that the toes aren't pointing up too much. If we see that your heel is contacting and the toes aren't really pointing up that much and you're still having like several issues, still going on several months of this continuing, then maybe we might talk about um, changing to more of a midfoot strike, which sort of takes the demand of the shin out of the equation but changes it more to the demands of the calf. So... Um, behind the shin and those sort of compartments. So it's all about changing the shift. But I would say that the walk-run strategy should be done first 
because we don't really want to change a lot about how you run. We want that to be kind of a last resort uh, because we do know that changing your running mechanics means that we're not we're not um, lowering the load. We're only just distributing the load to somewhere else and that somewhere else might not be able to handle it. So we want to make sure that we're very careful and have very good justification for why we change certain things. So try the walk. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Running, allow the body to warm up a little bit more, allow the body just to catch up and not have that exponential demand going to that compartment. And if that's still not enough, then, and we witness your running and see that it does have those particular traits that increase the demand of that anterior compartment, then maybe it's worth having a chat to see whether we need to change it. Hey Brody, Christina here. Just wondering about what type of exercises to start with, especially when you're coming off of an injury or several injuries. When it comes to doing training with plyometrics, we're, we've been hearing so much about training the spring and the importance of training the tendons uh, for springiness and you know for the overall health of your lower legs and also um, interested in, in plyometric training, but when someone's coming off an injury, I guess that would be the last level that you would really approach. So interested in hearing some basic exercises that you could start with and maybe a progression. Hello, Christina. Thanks for submitting your question. Um, this sort of comes off the episode that I did um, a couple of weeks ago about HIT training, some like HIT training examples or um, things that you might want to consider implementing some workouts um, if you're looking for a bit of variety um, and I'm not too sure if it was highlighted too much in that episode but um, when that episode came out and I had the um, the little audiogram on Facebook um, a good friend Caleb McInnes talked about um, just mentioned that you also need to earn the right to do plyometric exercises by gaining the appropriate strength load tolerance prior to doing them and I couldn't agree with him more. Um, plyometrics are a very explosive exercise that are designed to already have a really strong base of like foundational strength before you can do them. Um, make sure you have really good quality, make sure you can do them through a good range of movement, have a really nice foundation. So we do need to be a bit careful and have the right guidance when it comes to plyometric exercises. Um, I can just imagine just a runner who's just getting started out with basics and does say lunges and they're doing body weight lunges and just doing three sets of 10 and, you know, just getting the foundations. And then, then they discover plyometric lunges. They decide to do them and it's really poor quality. Um, and first of all, like the hips and the knees might not have the tolerance to tolerate those sort of demands and then starts getting sore, but then the quality and the, um, range of movement and the, I guess the alignment all just kind of falls out of place and really creates like a strain. So we do need to be very careful. So thanks Caleb for, for mentioning that. Um, it's a good reminder for me to, to let the audience know. Um, 
on the back of that, sort of continuing from that, I did when reading or well writing the Run Smarter book, talk about Luke Nelson and him, uh, his episode with calf and Achilles issues and strains. And he mentioned his favorite plyometric exercises. Um, and you can always just Google or YouTube these if you're unsure of the, the type of exercise. But um, pogo jumps was one of his suggestions, one that he really loves. He's mainly talking about rehabbing calf and Achilles stuff and talking more about end stage. So once you've done all the, the slow, heavy foundation stuff and you need to work on performance, then double leg pogo jumps can be quite nice. Uh, he did talk about a, an exercise which was two hops forward. So now we're doing single leg stuff. So two hops forward and then one hop back and just repeating that two forward, one back, two forward, one back in that particular sequence. Um, drop jumps with explosive power, stair running, backwards running also can um, generate some really nice demands through the calf and the Achilles. Also mentioned sled pushes. Um, I know Luke listens to these episodes, so thanks for your suggestions, Luke. And I will be reaching out to you to um, kind of ask for permission to use some of your quotes in the book. <laughs> um, when talking about returning from injury, if we're looking at calf and Achilles, just for an example, um, trying to bridge the gap between strength and conditioning. So the slow stuff and then getting to more plyometric stuff. If that is in your rehab ladder, if that is an idea that we want to do. Um, you can also play around with doing calf raises with a, a metronome. So doing tempo calf raises. And this can be with weight. It can be with light weight. We do need to be very careful with assigning weight to tempo um, calf raises to a metronome. But just as an example, you might set a metronome at um, 60 beats per minute as, say, stage one. And so every beep, you are moving up. Um, so you go up and down, up and down every single beep. And that might be okay to start with, but then we increase the metronome beats per minute just to make it a little bit faster. And once we get to 90, 100, 110, 120, they'll get to a bit of a turning point where, or a tipping point where there's no, not, no longer enough time for your heel to come up and then come all the way down to the ground. It's simply the tempo is moving too fast and you have to start bouncing. So you have to start um, implementing a little bit of plyometric to meet up, to keep up with that demand, to keep up with the, the beat. And so that might be with a little bit of weight, might be body weight. Um, this is where assigning the dosage is really careful. We need to base it on the individual. But eventually the tempo gets quite high and then all of a sudden you're bouncing. And so you're doing that plyometric style, um, still remaining sort of fresh legs, still wanting to make sure that we finish the set feeling kind of fresh and not fatigued and kind of sloppy with the movements. But um, that can be a really nice way to bridge the gap between foundation strength, the slow, heavy stuff, and then eventually getting to something that looks a little bit more plyometric. Um, I met, asked this to Campbell and he came up with some, some low, medium, and high impact plyometric exercises. And again, he high highlighted that... Um, we do need to make sure that plyometrics are kind of the end stage and might not even be for some. Um, but if the plyometrics themselves, if you do have, if you've earned the right to start doing them, 
then here are some ideas. Campbell did say pogo jumps, um, squat jumps, box jumps, star jumps, hops, skipping for height, these sort of just jumping-based style exercises. For medium impact, he had knee tuck jumps, split jumps, scissor jumps, hill bounding. So we're just looking into more of the, the bounding sort of stuff or like single leg lunge sort of movements. Uh, uphill hopping and hop for height. So again, just progressing to more single leg stuff. And then high impact had double scissor jump, single leg stride jump and speed hops. All of those you can look up and look up yourself and sort of YouTube them if you're unfamiliar. Uh, and did mention, Campbell did mention that when doing the plyometrics, uh, you measure the workload by the number of ground contacts per session. So he mentioned his examples, start with something like 30 to 40 ground contacts per session and then slowly work upwards. Next question comes in from Dominic. Stride length is often impacted by PHT. What plyometric and end range exercises would you recommend to try and get back to previous stride length? Thanks for submitting your question, Dominic. Um, for those who don't know what PHT is, proximal hamstring tendinopathy, um, just a condition, a tendinopathy condition that affects really high up in the hamstring as it attaches to the sitting bone and it is impeded or like stride length can be impeded because we're talking about the eccentric control of your hamstring. So as you um, are just about to contact your the ground with your foot, so those moments when we, it's what we call the late swing phase, your leg starts to straighten out, but your hamstring needs to um, slow down the rate of the, the swinging lower leg. And so it needs to contract as the leg is lengthening. It's what we call eccentric strength, but also because the leg is out in front of you, the proximal tendon of the hamstring as it attaches onto the sitting bone undergoes a little bit of compression depends on how far you're overstride like if you do overstride if you don't overstride it's a bit less compression but that phase of the running cycle is where it is the highest hamstring demand i guess is where where we can start this conversation so that's why i guess the stride length seems to be the most impeded when it comes to running and people recovering from PHT. Um, so it does result in people being quite, feeling quite restricted, feeling like that phase of their running is limited and feeling like, um, yeah, their rehab kind of needs to work on that. So my advice would be that the, the good rehab, really well-structured, well-balanced rehab should resolve the issue. It's, what we call the rehab ladder. Like your rehab ladder starts with what your current capacity is and the current symptoms and the current like running, I guess, stride and working your way up. The top of the ladder would be meeting the demands of running without any issues, without any symptoms. And then, okay, how can we bridge the gap with building steps in between your current and your future capacity? So, in Dominic's case, it would be, all right, so already back to running, but still getting this apprehension or this hesitancy or this pain, symptoms, tightness, whatever, it, at this particular phase of running. And so we say, okay, well, these are the, the demands of running 
at that particular phase, let's build out a rehab program that bridges that gap. And in this particular case, um, I've seen this um, scenario very frequently. I do have a lot of clients that have PHT. That's why my second podcast is called the Overcoming Proximal Hamstring Tendinopathy Podcast, just because I have so many clients and wanted that resource to to pass on to people. Um, but I do have a lot of PHT clients that return to very slow running, very low amounts of running. They just they say, "Look, my running just isn't that f- fluent at the moment. Symptoms are okay, but I just don't feel like I have the same freedom or flexibility as I do with the other side." And a lot of it comes down to Dominic's. Um, what he reports is just that stride, that just really late swing, just as the foot contacts the ground, that just doesn't feel comfortable. And so my thought being, okay, we need to train the hamstring stronger into more of a um, eccentric action. It needs to be quite forceful because we want that quick kind of action eventually as we start running, especially if we start running faster that demand starts to spike. So we do start with things like deadlifts. You can um, do like a Swiss ball rollout where feet are on the uh, that those big balls that you sit on. So doing a bridge with your back on the ground, feet up on the ball, go up onto a bridge, but then roll the ball out. So eccentrically loading the hamstring, but we load it through full range of movement. So getting the legs completely straight and then curling the ball back. And we can do that with load. We can do that quite quickly. We can do that single leg. We can do that single leg quickly. All these sorts of things start to train the hamstring eccentrically at that really end range of movement. Nordics can be another one. Most people are familiar with those Nordic drops. They can really strengthen up the hamstring with eccentric load. Um, Long lever bridges might be um, something that's a little bit more beginner stage but just doing a bridge but with your feet really far away from your body Um, so that's what we call long lever bridges Um, but also heel hammers like if you do that really long lever bridge but then kind of just quickly walk on the spot where you're lifting one leg up and down the other leg up and down kind of just alternating between the two that is a really quick firing of the hamstrings at that end range which can kind of mimic those sort of things but then we're looking into faster stuff. You can do um, TheraBand prone hamstring curls with a lot of speed. You can, like I say, do the hamstring um, Swiss ball curls with a lot of speed. You can start adding a, in a little bit of speed to your deadlifts if you wanted to. A really slow eccentric, so the down phase, and then a very quick concentric phase, so moving up. And then all of this is just trying to bridge the gap between current capacity and future demands for running. But then on top of that, you know, you're run- if your running is a good balance, if you're running at a conservative speed or the right amount of speed and you're doing it at a really nice frequency throughout the week, um, so if symptoms can tolerate it, maybe running three or four times a week, maybe more, um, your body will just get start getting used to it. We're using running as our rehab because when you run, if it's within the right dosage, your body adapts to that running workout that you just did. And so if that swing phase is particularly troublesome, 
if you do it enough within the right dosage, it becomes less troublesome and the body gets used to that um, quick action because, you know, we're building up the eccentric control of your hamstring in your rehab. Another really good way to work and build upon your eccentric rehab is by running because running demands the hamstring to contract eccentrically and builds it up that way. And so if you're running, if your training is well-balanced, then rehab will be, the running will be a part of your rehab alongside your strength exercises and both of them together, those two pillars will build up. And so eventually those symptoms will diminish. Um, Campbell did have um, some advice pretty much along the same lines. Um, Pretty much said, don't focus on the stride length, focus on your overall rehab and strength development. Strength will return in time. Just have to be patient, um, have enough time for it to recover. Our last question for today comes from Lynn. Hey Brody, so I was wondering if when you're rotating pairs of shoes, is okay for them to have different stabilities? For example, I generally run in a neutral shoe, but I have a pair of stability shoes that would help correct overpronation. Um, just because they would offload different parts of the body. So I was wondering if it was be okay to rotate both of them. Thank you. Thanks, Lynn. A nice question. And, and hopefully maybe uh, a lot of the runners out there have the same sort of questions about rotating shoes. And I guess to start with, um, provided that both of your shoes are comfortable um, and you're not currently injured, rotating between those two shoes are perfectly fine. Um, I wouldn't use the term that that the stability shoes help correct over pronation um, because pronation is a very helpful and efficient sort of movement that the body does. And while some people pronate more than others, I don't think over pronation needs to be corrected unless you are finding that there's something that's, if you're injured or if you have pain that is contributing because of that pronation, then we might want to either limit it for a period of time before you reintroduce your natural movements, natural mechanics with those painful structures, having the enough capacity, enough to strength to tolerate those things. Um, so just a, a, I guess my little bit of nitty gritty uh, with terminologies and that sort of stuff. But with each shoe offers different variety. Uh, the stability shoes, like we've got minimalist shoes, maximalist shoes, heel drops, um, all across the board, different variety shoes that offer different parts, uh, demand different parts from your leg, offload certain parts of the foot or certain parts of the leg, but expose other loads to parts of the leg. And so shoes are a nice tool to offer variety to your feet and to the rest of the lower leg. And as long as you have adapted to both, then theoretically, in my mind anyway, it contributes to your overall resiliency as a runner. I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but just as an example, if you had one person that wears your traditional running shoe, that's all they've ever worn, that's all they ever will wear or all they want to wear, they have adapted to that shoe and will really struggle to deviate other qualities to like a minimalist shoe or a, um, a zero heel drop or less cushioning, those sorts of things. They'll really struggle because they've only adapted to one style of shoe. 
and adapting to more types of shoes just increases that resiliency. But it just depends on what the runner wants to do with that because that first runner who only runs in one pair of shoe, they'll be completely fine just to continue running in that shoe. But just keep in mind that that just narrows the the adaptation zone and what they can tolerate. Um, whereas, yeah, if you offer different varieties, if you offer different loads with different shoe qualities, then overall just builds up some resiliency. There's nothing wrong with one pair. There's nothing wrong with two pairs. But if you do have two or more pairs and you've adapted to all of them, contributes all round. So um, now that you've, I'm assuming that you've adapted to these two shoes, you can, um, there's nothing wrong with continuing, you can rotate them out um, and you can start using them as a bit more of a tool in your training. So if you want to prepare for a race, you might find that you're faster in your neutrals. Um, if you wanna do very slow, easy runs, you might wanna use your stability shoes. Particularly for weeks, like if you have tight calves or a sore Achilles or if your feet have been battered up, if you're had it, if you're just backing off a really big mileage the week before and just general soreness, general tiredness, particularly below the knee, then you could probably do more of your running in your stability shoes because the stability shoes might offer um, support or less demand on the foot calf Achilles. And that might be exactly what you need. So you're, you're choosing which shoes to pick based on how your body's feeling or what demands that you have. Um, if someone only has one shoe and they only want to stick to one shoe, the only reason I would change it, well, the only reason I change um, or recommend a different style of shoe over another would be one, if they want to increase their running performance. So if they wanted to squeeze out the most um, bang for their buck, if they wanted to become as economical as possible, if they've got a marathon that they're training towards and they want to give it their best, research shows that the, a lighter shoe will help increase running economy. And if their current shoe, you know, has a little bit of weight to it, you would benefit from changing to a lighter shoe, but the transition time depending how abrupt uh, in the style of shoe you have. If you go from a maximalist to a minimalist, that huge abrupt change, that might take months to adapt towards. If it's something a little bit more minute, if it's if you're already used to a zero heel drop, but then you go to a zero heel drop and it's a little bit lighter and the stability is just a little bit less, might only take a couple of weeks. But that's when I would change if someone wants to increase performance. Um, if they're injured, perhaps we might change their shoe qualities around. If they have plantar fasciitis or if they've been dealing with chronic kind of Achilles issues or um, calf strains, maybe it might be worth or warranted changing a certain type of shoe. So that's another scenario where I would maybe offer or recommend a change in shoes. The other one is if they're uncomfortable, if your current shoes are uncomfortable, if the tops of your feet are painful or if the ends of your toes are getting sore, um, that's warranted for a different change. Maybe that shoe is getting too old or maybe that style of shoe just isn't suiting you based on the, the volume of running or the type of running or the surface of running that you do. 
Uh, and then it's just the fourth one that I thought I'd put in here would just be runner's preference, just their choice. Some people decide they want to give maximalist shoes a go. Some, some runners decide they want to give minimalist shoes a go. And I'm more than happy with that as long as the transition is uh, sensible enough. And as long as, you know, you're avoiding those abrupt changes, I think, you know, that it's quite safe. So increasing their performance, if they're injured, if their current shoes are uncomfortable, or if they've decided to have a change in their preference and want to give something else a go, because they hear it's um, all the rage or they think it would really benefit them off something that they've read, by all means, we can try it out. Um, that would be those scenarios. But Lynn, for your particular scenario, I uh, think it's totally fine that you have those two style shoes, the neutrals and the stabilities. If you find both of them comfortable, I would use them um, to your liking, use them as the body seems fit um, and just rotate them out so that you can remain adapted to those two and build your overall resilience. Those are the Four questions I had submitted. Thank you to everyone. So Lynn, Dominic, Christina, and Rachel for submitting those. Um, this has been really fun. I always like hearing people's voices. And from around the world, I hear a whole bunch of different accents. Um, so it, goes to, it makes me feel better knowing that we're reaching the global audience and um, these are the type of questions that are coming in. And I hope you as a listener enjoyed this as well, um, just to overall build up your your running knowledge. And as I sign off, remember, every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based, long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.